Today we will be in Acts chapter 2. And so if you've got a Bible, um, then I encourage you, if you would please grab it, we'll be in Acts chapter 2. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, um, I, I, I want to encourage you, my, my friend Jazz is going to grab uh, a, a couple of Bibles over here. And if you don't own a Bible or you don't have a Bible with you, um, he's going to grab some off the table. And so uh, not only does, do we want you to have a Bible as we're in here reading um, today, but also if you don't own one, let this be our gift to you. And so if you don't have a Bible on you and you want one, you want to follow along, wave, kind of raise your hand for a minute here, and my friend Jazz will, will, will give you one uh, or just give him kind of the stare. And he'll, uh, he'll, he'll use the nonverbal cues and, and, bring, and bring you a Bible. And so, as always, if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. And even more so, if you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, that's, take that. Make that our gift to them. We, we want God's Word uh, to be in everyone's hands that, that would be open to receive it. So, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. Um, we will be, it's toward the end of the book, and in Acts chapter 2, we'll try to pick up a little bit of where we left off this last week. As we looked at the beginnings of the church and what the marks of the first church looked like. Because as we read a few weeks ago, Jesus, who was put into a grave, who was betrayed and abandoned by his friends, did not stay in that grave. And now that this movement has begun because of what these first people witnessed after Jesus was placed in the grave, we are gathered here even today, 2,000 years later, to celebrate a movement that began so many centuries ago. And now that as we know that the movement's begun because Jesus is alive, we have to ask ourselves, now what? What do we do now? What? So what? Jesus is alive. What's that got to do with me? And we've been walking through the paces of what the first Christians looked like, the first followers of Jesus believed and practiced, and their actions, which is the title of this book, the Acts of the Apostles. And so when we ask the question, now what? What do we do? There's no better place in Scripture than to Look in the book titled, This is What You Do. These are the actions. Some of them describe, they're descriptive of what the first followers did, and some of them prescribe, they're prescriptive, and they actually tell us what we ought to do and what we ought to believe. And discerning between the two is, is a challenge, but we at the very least want to lift them up as an example and emulate what these first followers of Jesus did. Even if in some small way that we don't have the power or gifts that they had, we also still want to strive for those things so we look a lot like the first followers of Jesus. Hoping that we will be a church, a group of people that are based around and rooted in ancient things, not antique things. So we want to be people that believe in ancient truth, not antique truth. We want, like these people, to fight and die for things that are ancient, that are timeless, that are eternal. We don't want to pick fights over things that are ancient, okay? I mean, excuse me, antique. At some point, you and I, and whatever we're doing right now, that whatever you, we're going to go out of style, right? Either by what we're wearing um, or what we're doing. Maybe, maybe the way that we worship is going to go out of style, and that's okay. We're not going to fight about that because as long as the ancient truth is our center point, it's our root, then the other antique stuff, eh, we can hold fairly loosely. I don't want anyone to ever fight and die over a steeple, right? But I want us to fight and die over the good news of Jesus. And that's what these guys did. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, the birthday of the church. We'll skip around, hopefully learning some things from them that we can ourselves begin to emulate in our own lives. Verse 1 of chapter 2, 
when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now that was a religious holiday in which people gathered together. Um, They got together, a lot of religious people in one place. They traveled from far off to be all together. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So already, something's crazy, something crazy is taking place. It says, a great wind came. Well, that's not really hard for us to believe. We can see wind on a regular basis. That's that time of year um, in that it is a year. And we always have wind here in the middle of the country, whether it's snow that's blowing sideways or later there'll probably rain that doesn't come straight down. Um, and after that, there'll be wind that comes back. And Great wind doesn't surprise us. Here's what surprises us about this. The great wind took place inside. The wind began to rush while they were indoors. So already something amazing is happening. A picture of the wind that is like an invisible power meant to spark our own pictures of what the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of God's power might look like. The wind begins to rush inside the house where they were sitting. Verse 3, And then divided tongues of fire appeared to them, and they rested on each one of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That is God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors even from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear all of them. We hear them telling in our own tongue, our own language, the mighty works of God and of course all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean some wanted to explain it and they said in verse 13 others were mocking and they said they're just filled with new wine so get the picture of what just happened a group of people got together picture yourself uh, in maybe a metropolitan area where there are many, many, many different cultures, many different languages, many different ethnicities, many different nationalities, all crowded into one place, and they've all come for this one party. You know, picture uh, Mardi Gras, people coming together for a you know, somewhat, let's say, religious observance, right? Converging on a city, many of them from all parts of the world, getting together. Most of them are from different cultures. They speak different languages. You can picture any metropolitan area if you want. Downtown uh, New York City, Manhattan. You can picture downtown San Francisco where, where many cultures are converging and many languages are being spoken. And so there's a lot of different 
uh, people who don't have a lot in common, and they all gather together to kind of, let's say, party together. And while they're there, a handful of people who are followers of Jesus become inspired as they gather together. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, His invisible, powerful Spirit, manifests Himself to these people and becomes visible through some signs. Wind blowing inside and fire happening inside. And in the process, all of those people who were gathered in that vicinity from different nations, they spoke different languages, different nationalities, all of them began to hear these people testify about what God has done, the mighty and wonderful works of God. And not only did they hear them speak, but they heard them speak clearly in their own language, even in their own dialect. They heard them speak not only in their own language, but without an accent. Perfectly, clearly, the works of God. So much so that the craziness inspires, or it gets everyone's attention. Most of them are amazed at what they see, and then some of them just assume, I don't know if you've ever seen people speaking crazily and, and it's hard to understand them, but they just, some of them assume, well, that person's drunk, right? Because after all, drunk people speak crazy things, good or bad. And that's what they assume. There's got to be a perfectly good explanation. Maybe they're just drunk. So as you get the picture of this craziness going on, I, I want to make a few observations that I think are important for us. That is that, first and foremost, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, although sometimes invisible, intangible, is always at work. Is always moving things. Is always pulling and pushing us. So much so that the Bible later tells us that if we experience struggle or battle, that, that we ought to be encouraged to know that our battle ultimately is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the things that you can see, but there's a possibility that behind the scenes there is a spiritual reality, that God's Spirit is working, and that there may be other spiritual realities working against God's Spirit. And so the things that we face have an eternal nature to them. They have a spiritual, invisible nature to them. And sometimes it becomes clear to us. Sometimes we perceive it, sometimes we don't. And in this case, they perceived it. And God's Spirit is working and active. But I want you to pay attention to what it is that God's Spirit is doing. It says that it inspired these people to speak, but they began to speak about, if you'll notice, the mighty works of God. They began to speak the mighty works of God. So here you go. God always, like a loving Father, wants to draw His people to Himself. Just like I love my children to come running to me and I love to embrace them, our God is a much better Father than I am. And even more so than I love my children being close to me, our loving Father loves His people to be close to Him. And so He is constantly pulling and pushing by His Spirit, you and I, closer to Him. Now I say that because that is a powerful litmus test. As, as I say something crazy like the Holy Spirit is working and the, the Holy Spirit is doing things, and you might say, well, how will I know? How do I understand what's going on? Because there's no shortage of people saying that they have spiritual experiences. But how do we discern whether or not God's Spirit is actually what is pulling and pushing us? Well, here's an easy one. God always draws us to Himself. God will never, by His Spirit, push you away from Himself. 
any more than as much as I try to be a loving father, if my daughter were to come to me and ask me for directions, hey, dad, how do I get to Walmart? I'm a decent father, and so I'm not going to give her the wrong directions. Right? I mean, hey, you know, <laughs> you know go off walking into the wilderness. Get lost. I wouldn't do that. And that hopefully gives us kind of a window into a much better and an infinitely, exponentially greater father than I am that our God is the same way. As a father, He doesn't look at you and me and send us mixed messages. God never would give us directions that would lead us away from Him. And so one of the best tests is, look, I think I'm, I'm trying to make a decision. I think maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. The way you can ask yourself if it's the Holy Spirit is like, does this glorify God? Does this point me to God? After the end of this experience that we call spiritual, are we closer to God? And even more perfectly, as we see that's going to happen in the next few verses, it points to Jesus. God always testifies to Himself. God always points through His Spirit to Jesus. And so if you and I stand up, and, and even now as I'm speaking to you, if at the end of this you don't get more of Jesus, well then I've failed to be a messenger of the Holy Spirit, but we've also failed to receive what the Holy Spirit is doing. Because the Holy Spirit always testifies to Jesus. And so if I ever stand up here and I say, hey, the Holy Spirit's given me an idea, or I want to lead us in a direction, and the Holy Spirit's doing it, before you can actually give the Holy Spirit credit for it, ask yourself this, does Jesus get more glory from this? Do I love and honor and serve Jesus more faithfully now that the Holy Spirit's done this? Because if that's not, if, if the Spirit begins to confuse, if, if what we say about the Holy Spirit divides us, then I have, I have news for you. There's no biblical basis by which we can say that's actually the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit moves, He unites us around Jesus. Did, did you get that? There was a metropolitan area where people from every language, different skin colors, different, different nationalities, all of them gathered and they converged on this one place. And when the Holy Spirit moved and caused wind to swirl around and they caused fire to come in the house, who ends up getting the attention? Jesus does. And we can tell that when the Holy Spirit moves, a group of people like us will always love Jesus more because of it. When the Holy Spirit moves, Jesus is always made manifest. But there's also something that I, I want to point out here that's, that may be a stretch, but I, I know that it's, it's true, at least for my own life. God will meet you where you are. We do not worship and celebrate a God this morning who is up there, out there, distant, and we hope maybe He hears us, maybe He cares about us. That's not the picture of God that the Bible paints for us. We know that God is not up there and out there, but instead God is present. He is here. He is active. God is working and God is speaking. And God will, because of His loving and caring nature, meet you and I where we are. I, I point that out because there, there's kind of a popular notion of God in most religious life, and most pictures of religion around the world, in which God is up there and out there. And if you will like, do these things, if you will do all the things on list A, right? do this, do this, do this, do this, do it every day, do it all the time, do it with discipline. And if you will do those things, then you will somehow meet God. 
There's also kind of a picture of, and this is what's more popular, and this is what usually makes more, more news and, and headlines, is that you don't do these things. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And if, and if you fail to avoid these things, well then God who is up there and out there is now angry. And so hopefully if you do all the things on list A and avoid all the things in list B, you might please God and might in some way meet God and know who God is by all these things you do. Here's the problem. That's just not in the Bible. Instead, we see a picture of a God who doesn't wait for us to get our act together, who doesn't wait for us to be perfect. Instead, he actively sends his spirit to testify to his goodness, his mercy. He shows his faithfulness, not that he waits until you get your act together, but instead he shows his love and faithfulness by pursuing you, meeting you where you are, and literally speaking your language. He doesn't want you to learn the language so that you will hear Him. He will speak your language. He will meet you where you are. I want to encourage you. Uh, maybe at the very least today you're, you're wondering if God is real. <laughs> you're wondering, oh, how can I believe in this God? And you're thinking God is up there and out there. Here's a story that I hope encourages you. God will meet you where you are. We believe in a God that doesn't sit and wait. We believe in a God that pursues. In the same way, I use the father analogy again. In the same way that my daughter doesn't come run to me, even as a halfway decent father like me, I'm going to run to her. Especially if she falls and skins her knee and she's doing very regularly now. I'm going to sprint. I'm going to run to her. And here's the good news that we see from this picture painted of God in Scripture. Our God and loving Father, who is a much better father than I am, runs to us. We have a God who loves us so much that He pursues us. And be careful when you hear kind of the, the contemporary notion of a God that is somehow angry at you and disappointed in you because you're not as good as you should be. There's good news. God isn't waiting for you to clean up your act. He'll meet you where you are. And He'll even speak your language. I can, I can testify to this. I remember um, you know, knowing who God was from an early age, being taught by my parents, being raised in a fairly religious home. Who God was. Kind of had all the stories told and knew about who God is. And maybe some of you feel the same way. Maybe you know, even have a, at the very least, have a cursory knowledge of who God is. But then there's this other side of the story that I experienced where God met me and spoke my language. And something about it inspired me and changed my life. God spoke my language. This is what it looked like for them, and I'll share with you what it might have looked like even for me to have experienced something similar. Verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. First and foremost, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. After all, hey man, it's not even five o'clock somewhere, all right? These people are not drunk. What they're experiencing isn't a hallucination, they're not in a stupor. Something bigger is going on. So listen to me, these people are not drunk. It's too early for them to all be drunk. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And then your young men will see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And then even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And then they all shall prophesy. And then I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed by the hand and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he quotes another Old Testament phrase, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is to hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. But instead you have made known to me the paths of life. and You will make me full of gladness. With your distance from me, with how far up you are and out there, no, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So brothers, I say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried and his and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And that... And of that we are all now witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So now let all the house of Israel therefore know the for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom, as if you forgot the first time, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, listen to these words, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And then they said to Peter, and then the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we now do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this generation. And so those who received this word were baptized, and then they were added to that day about 3,000 souls.
And so I read that long passage out to you. I know some of you maybe put you to sleep. I, it's okay. It happens, man. I, I, I understand that. That's a, a long phrase. But I, I point that out to you because this, this is the first sermon recorded for the followers of Jesus. This is the first sermon. And so I want to read that to you, hoping that it will be a lot better than any sermon I could come up with. Right? It, this is the first sermon. And, and some really cool things happen in it. Things that you might not expect, but ultimately the Holy Spirit uses it. First and foremost, don't forget, when he starts speaking these things, the works of God, people who didn't even speak his language, people who were from a different country, a different nationality, who spoke another language, heard this good news, this good news of the Holy Spirit testifying about who Jesus is and what he's done. The Spirit led people and pointed people to Jesus to the point that it says they were cut to the heart. So back to what we were talking about. We know a God who meets us where we are, who speaks our language, and doesn't wait for us to figure it out, but instead loves us so much that He runs after us. Sends people sometimes with the message of who He is. Now for me, this is how it looked, and I've watched this happen in my own life. I I remember um, a, a time in my own life where I kind of had some weird thoughts about Jesus, and I was afraid Jesus was this really sweet, nice guy who who really, you know, got bullied, and he wasn't a really cool guy. And, and, then, and then I started to read the Bible, and it comes to find out that Jesus actually is king. He is Lord. He's a ruler. And even though he's a sweet and awesome and nice guy, he is power given to him by God. And I remember, and I don't have any better words than what this sermon tells, I remember hearing that and being like, let's use their words, cut to my heart. Something inside of me was inspired by that. And someone shared with me that there is no place in all of the world and all of the universe and all of the creation over which Jesus Christ does not look at and say, that is mine. So Jesus being a great teacher, a great prophet, a nice and friendly guy, also has been given all things over, all things under heaven. And he even says, one of the last words he said At the end of Matthew, he says, all authority under heaven and under earth has been given to me. And someone shared to me that there's no person, there's no place, there is no thing in all of creation over which Jesus does not look at, hold, and say, this is mine. He owns it all. And then when someone finally painted that picture of Jesus who who owns all things, and He possesses all things. He owns all people. He has power over all people. And and this encouraged and challenged me. He even looks at me, holds me, and He says, this one is mine. Man, I don't know about you, but that, that inspired me. And hearing words that even though I, sing, I, I thought I knew that, it cut me to the heart. And that's because our God speaks our language. And there's something different about this story of Jesus. Something different about who this Jesus is compared to anyone else. That even, even as we tell the story of who Jesus is, I, I believe that there's probably some of you that if you were honest with yourself, it, it kind of stirs something in you. There's something about this story of Jesus, even though it's about 2,000 years old, there's something about this story of Jesus that, that makes you feel like the story's also about you. And I don't mean the story like Disney tells that makes you think, oh, I want to be a princess too. 
right, that leaves you singing, let it go, right? I want to be a princess, because that's not really realistic, is it? But that story still somehow inspires us and makes us kind of, hey, I, I want to be a part of that. This story is infinitely greater. That when I say that Jesus has done something for us and Peter tells us that all you have to do is look upon Him, call His name, reach out to Him, and receive this good news in some way that I can't even explain, it like inspires you. As he says, it cuts you to the heart. And this story changes who you are. And as the Spirit testifies to who Jesus is, it changes us. But I want to end on this. I want to point out one thing of how it is that God meets us where we are. If God really does reach down and God really does speak to us where we are, I want you to see how honest God is. And and this hurts at first, but it points to the greater news of who Jesus is. Did you notice that Peter didn't really give what I would call a seeker-sensitive sermon? Right? He didn't. like It wasn't a loving, happy, hey, you guys are awesome. In fact, in case you missed the first accusation, he does it again. He says, by the way, you who killed Jesus. Now this is Pentecost. This is a number of weeks after Jesus had already been buried and raised from the dead. And so it's kind of weird for him to look at this group of people and say, you killed Jesus. I mean, it's possible that there was a couple of people who are there that were also there when Jesus was killed, and they may be somehow directly responsible. But what did he mean when he looked at a crowd of people, most of which probably weren't even in Jerusalem when Jesus died, and he accuses them of killing Jesus? Because after all, if you want to win a crowd over, you know, you want to win a bunch of friends, let's say like this one, 3,000, you want to win a bunch of people over, hey, don't don't go accusing them of like crimes, right? Don't, Don't accuse them of terrible things. And yet there's something amazing that as God meets us where we are, He also brings the truth with, uh, with Him. And sometimes that truth, I warn you, is painful. And in case you missed it, in case these people missed it, Peter <laughs> said it twice. Hey, God doesn't love you because you're special. In fact, it's crazy that God loves you because you're all murderers. And this is a scary and not a very friendly thing to hear. And in fact, I had a pastor, I heard him speak about this several months ago. Um, he, he brought attention to something I didn't know uh, about the Passion of the Christ, the, the movie that was, that was directed by Mel Gibson, right? And Mel Gibson kind of made a, a cameo appearance. You don't see his face, but he wanted to make sure that the one appearance that he made in his movie, the story about how Jesus was killed, he wanted to make sure that the appearance he made was an important one. And so if you watch The Passion of the Christ, this popular movie that depicts how Jesus died, Mel Mel Gibson's hand shows up. And when the Roman soldiers take the spike and nail Jesus to the cross, that's actually Mel Gibson's hand. It's his hand holding the stake. His hand hammering in the nail. Now, I actually don't recommend that you listen to any of Mel Gibson's advice about anything. (laughs) Except this one thing. Because he kind of captures for just a minute what it must have felt like to be cut to the heart by the accusation that the people 
were somehow responsible for Jesus' death. And even though I wasn't there, if this is true, if what Jesus accomplished on the cross is that He died, He died with a purpose, He died so that I might be saved, to use these words, that He died so that I might know and love God. He died so that God might no longer have wrath and anger for me, but instead God would have mercy for me. If it's true that Jesus died for me, then there's a sense in which I'm responsible for his death. I'm responsible for it. Had I not wandered into traffic, Jesus would never have needed to sacrifice his own body to take my place. Had I not run away from God and wandered away from God and rebelled against God, then Jesus would have never had to jump into harm's way to chase me down. And that truth, although it kind of hurts, is, if you're honest with yourself, your story and mine. We don't deserve God's love. Heck, there are things that I've said and done even this morning that make me not deserve God's love. But our God meets us where we are. Our God will speak our language. language. Our God will inspire our hearts. And our God will be honest with us about who we are. Not, hey, you're great and you're awesome, but instead, hey, you killed Jesus. It's your fault. I don't love you because you're great. I love you in spite of the fact that you're not. And what an amazingly good news that in spite of hearing the fact that they themselves were guilty of rebelling against God and killing His Son, in spite of the fact that you and I know that we're in some way responsible because of our rebellion against God for Jesus dying on the cross, in spite of that fact, there is incredibly good news that Jesus loves us even on our worst day. And even if you yourself have never committed murder, I have good news for you. Jesus died for even the people who killed him. And the good news of this first sermon that Peter shares is that this God who meets us where we are, who pursues us, who sends his son to redeem us and reclaim us as his own, does so even for those people who are murderers. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly good news. God is not waiting for me to figure it out because I'm really bad at it. God is not waiting for me to have a really great day and then he's going to send his son to save me. God is not sitting up there waiting for me to stop rebelling against him, to stop sinning, to stop running away from him. Instead, where we are, where we find ourselves today, wherever you are, whatever language you speak, our God sends his son so that you would know how good he is. And instead of coming to him, these people with a word of judgment and wrath. Instead, he comes to you and me. He tells us, hey, you don't deserve this, but there's good news, and I want to speak it in your language. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, follow in his footsteps, and we're all good. The slate is wiped clean. And so if you're asking yourself, what do I do? Well, here's how Peter ends. Because this is actually what they asked, right? Hey, we, this, this good news of Jesus, it, it cuts to our heart. And they ask him, what do we do? 
And Peter responds, repent. Repent, that is, turn. Change your mind. You hear the story of Jesus and how good He is and how it somehow kind of draws you in? Set your mind on that. Take your mind off of whatever it was on and set your mind on how good He is. Set your mind and heart on Him. Walk toward Him. And it says, be baptized. That is, participate actively in what Jesus has done. In the same way that Jesus went to the grave and came out victoriously, so also we participate in that death because we go under the water. We risk drowning knowing that because of what Jesus has done, we come out of the water, out of the chaos, having a new life. Turn away from your old life. Live like Jesus. And then it says, this is going to happen. Then the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive God's Spirit. Because remember what His Spirit does? He draws us to Him. I won't kick you out. I'll draw you to Me. And it says, the promise is for you. And in case you think you're not good enough, and in case right now what I tell you hasn't been good news for you, in case right now you still think you're a failure and God doesn't love you, if you think you're too far away from God for Him to reach you, if you think that God has stopped loving you and that you've run away, just in case you think that, Peter wants you to know that this promise, the promise that He wants to fulfill for you in Jesus, is for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all of you who are far off. Wandered away from God lately? It's good news. The promise of His love is for you. You who are far off. Find yourself saying there's no way that this can be redeemed. There's no way my life can be changed. I have good news for you. God will chase you down to prove you wrong. He will run you down. And you can't outrun Him. And all of you and I who have wandered far off, we are now children of promise. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You are good. I thank you even in my own life that despite my best efforts to destroy my future, despite my best efforts to make decisions that have hurt myself and the people around me, despite my best efforts to avoid you and run away from you, I'm still not too far off. And here's a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance, that ultimately Christ died to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. I pray that that would begin to cut our hearts, that that would cut us deeply, that that would change us. And as we hear that story unfold of what Jesus has done for us, of how God has not abandoned us and run away from us, but instead that God is pursuing us and chasing us, as that story begins to change our hearts and inspire us, I pray that we would begin to take steps toward setting our hearts and minds on believing that it's true and living as though it's a reality. So if there's some of us in this room, maybe we think we're too far off. Oh man, would you right now cut us to our hearts and replace that doubt with the encouragement of the promise of your love? If there's some people we know 
that we encounter in the days ahead that maybe they don't think that you love them and they don't think you're real and, uh, and they think that they've done too many things, that they've run away too far. Uh, God, would we encourage them? Would we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, testify to your goodness, make much of who Jesus is, and encourage them right where they are and say, look, God loves you so much that no matter how far off you may be, He wants you to know it's not too far. May we encourage those people around us when we get the opportunity. God, if we've ever doubted, if we've uh, wondered if you're real, if we've wondered that this thing that you've been doing even matters to us, would you encourage us and would you show us that uh, you mean to love us, you mean to meet us where we are, you mean to speak a language that we can understand. You're not waiting for us to get it right, but instead you made the first step to make it right for us. I thank you that it's not our religion, it's not our steps, it's not our deeds that makes us right before you, but instead it's your grace, it's your mercy that makes us right. It's not that we're good children that makes us right, it's that you're a loving father. I thank you for that. I pray that that would change our hearts, change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.